I'd like to show you why knowing your why is the start of your journey. Without a strong why, it can be so difficult to reach your maximum potential. My name is Dr. Jason Ballara, and every week I meet with real estate investors and mindset specialists that are taking action in order to build a life according to their own terms. We will break down what drives successful people and allows them to achieve at such a high level. If you are a professional wanting to break through, or simply someone that wants to hear an inspiring story, the Know Your Why podcast is made for you. Hi, everyone. I'm Jason Ballara, and this is the Know Your Why podcast. Today, I'm here with Matt Four. Matt is a part-time real estate investor based out of Nashville, Tennessee. In his professional life, he spent over a decade in sales and sales leadership positions at one of the largest technology companies in the world. But after finding real estate, Matt was able to achieve financial independence in just three years. So first of all, Matt, um, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I appreciate having you and, and you taking the time out to, to tell us your story. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah, sure. So, so let's start there. Let's just kind of maybe dive into the the beginning. You know, kind of tell us tell us your background. Tell us how you got into real estate, and and then we'll kind of um, open it up from there. Sure, absolutely. So, Matt Ford, based out of Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, I, as way of introduction, I've spent over a decade in sales and sales leadership at some of the largest technology companies in the world. And how I got involved in real estate was in 2016. I was a part of a large net new acquisition campaign at a customer. And when I when we won that deal, my lights got big on the life changing amount of commission check that I was expected to receive. So because of that, I started looking at different ways that I was going to invest this. And I heard everything from crypto to bonds to stocks, to annuities. And then I had a mentor at the time that said, hey, you should look into this real estate thing. It's cash flow, it's tax benefits, there's some appreciation for it. And I was sold on the idea. But then I got the call the week of Christmas from my VP at the time. And I want to clarify, this is not the company I work for today. But he said, hey, Matt, you're not going to receive that life-changing amount of commission check. You're actually going to receive two cents on the dollar. And when I asked him, I was like, hey, wait, how did we get to this number? He said, Matt, how much money have you made this year? And I told him and he said, well, isn't that enough? And it was at that time, Jason, that I realized if I wanted to pursue the things that I wanted to pursue and give abundantly to the causes that I cared about, that I was going to have to find a different way to uh, source my financial independence. So fortunately, at that point, I was already down this rabbit hole of real estate. I uh, ended up buying my first single family property in 2017 and then kind of have scaled it from there. Okay, Awesome. Yeah, I mean it's it's an interesting um situation. I mean, interesting, not good for you, but but w- when you there's a lot of, you know, talk a lot about this, you know, the the security that is implied from a W2 job, that sort of thing. And it, it's not, you know, nothing wrong with having a W2 job, but but you are always at the, you know, sort of whim, mercy, whatever word you want to use of your employer. So even even in those types of scenarios where you know people talk about and 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 sales is one of the you know maybe one of the best um vehicles for for as as a w2 employee to at least have you know almost like unlimited income not unlimited but you know you know what i mean you can really kind of push those <laughs> push those limits at least but but even still you know to have that that event happen and have them sort of take that away from you it, it's just things that people People look at investing in real estate and you know talk about the risk, but in reality, you're 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 probably a lot more risky being at the at the whim of someone else. So, um, 
you started, you had a single family home. What, what else kind of happened there? What was, what was the journey? Um, I know, you know, it says you achieved financial independence in, in three years. So uh, I, fairly certain you didn't do that with one single family house. So what, <laughs> no, what kind of no. happened next? Um, yeah. So a comment I would make though, is that you mentioned sales is a good path to achieving a high income. And, and that's why I got into sales, to be honest with you. And I remember I had a VP at the time that told me, he was like, Hey, the best part about being in sales is you can give yourself a raise every year. You just got to go out there and hustle and find new opportunities. Right. So when that moment happened to me, it was kind of a realization that no, unless you're kind of owning the process and owning the sources of income, that there will always be someone in charge of how much you make. And if it's between them and you, I hate to say it, but 100% of the time, they're probably going to pick them. Yeah. And uh, look, I'm very grateful for the opportunity I had at that company and the the lessons I learned, but it, it definitely opened my eyes. So back to your question on kind of how I was able to achieve financial independence is, so I started down that path in 2017. And I remember at the time, a lot of folks saying, hey, don't you remember what happened in 2008? Like you could lose it all because my aunt, uncle's milkman uh, invested in real estate in the middle of nowhere and lost everything. And I, I told them at the time, it's like, hey, I just lost more money than I'm probably going to make the next several years. I think it's okay for me to make this bet. So that was a turnkey property. It was right around the street. It was a 2016 build. So only one person had lived in it at the time. It felt like a relatively safe investment to me. And from there, though, I found wholesaling. I found fixed and flips. I found the burr strategy, et cetera. So I went out there, found a bunch of wholesalers, got on their list in the Nashville area. Nashville is a, is a booming town right now. It's a great investment opportunity for, uh, for real estate and just quickly scaled my single family portfolio. And then I got to that point in 2020 where it's like, hey, wait a second. I've got 10 single family homes now. Fannie and Freddie won't loan me any more money. So I really had two different paths that I could choose. I could one, go and find local banks, credit unions and different places like that, portfolio lenders that would lend to me, uh, or to jump into bigger properties, syndications, building a team and things like that. So being that I work in a W-2 and finding those relationships, securing those relationships in the banking industry, I thought was going to be a bigger task. I decided to jump kind of in the multifamily in the syndication space. So when I say I achieve financial independence in the first three years, I first want to caveat, I'm not flying Air Dubai to first class to, uh, uh, to the World Cup this year or, or anything like that. It really means that I could provide for my basic needs, food, shelter, and things like that. And I know this is Know Your Why podcast, so I'm just going to go ahead and say, when you remove that subconscious feeling of having to, to figure out where your income is going to come to provide for yourself and your family, it just allows you to be so much more free in your life to say no to the wrong things and yes to the right things that you were meant to live for. So um, yeah, it's been a, it's been a fantastic journey and happy to take that wherever you want to take it. Yeah. I mean, let's, let's talk a little bit about, you know, sort of the point you just made on what financial independence means, because there's, there's a lot of talk about that in, you know, in the real estate space, all of the people with, uh, myself included, like some sort of platform, whether it's social media, podcast, whatever, you know, we, we talk about how, yes, get into real estate, you can achieve financial independence. But your point is is a really good one. And, and what I would add to it, like, it, it looks different for everybody, right? When, when, when we're saying financial independence, we aren't saying you'll fly, you know, private all the time. Like this is, 
you you have a place to live, you can afford all your bills, you know, you're comfortable. It's financial independence doesn't necessarily mean like an extravagant lifestyle, which is I think what what a lot of people think and and maybe don't they don't realize the the value and the power of that financial independence at a basic level that you just touched on. They don't realize that, hey, if I don't I don't have to worry about, you know, how am I going to pay rent next month or how am I going to pay my mortgage next month because I I have passive income or or non-passive income if you're if you're an active real estate investor but basically whatever um wherever it's coming from you know it's not just going to go away right you know it's it's kind of you've created these streams of income that are very reliable and so that's really what you know to the listener that that's what Matt's talking about it's it doesn't when when we talk about what real estate does for us or what it does for our investors it's not a <laughs> we're not telling you hey in 3 years you're going to be you know driving a bugatti or like it it that's not the point maybe you get there someday but like that's not the point the point is that freedom to not have the burden of looking at every single expense knowing that it, and and the flip side to that is you may need to work on your budget and you may need to you know do some cutbacks because on your spending to get to that point like there's there's more to it but it, it's it's a uh, it is a very freeing feeling when you get to that point yeah um, two, two comments i'd make there is one yeah. real estate is a get rich slow scheme right yeah. i mean there's no get rich fast in in real estate you might get lucky and find a wholesale property that you can wholesale fee for a million dollars or something like that and all of a sudden you're rich but it's a get rich slow plan and people need to understand right. that when they're investing in real estate it's a slow methodical up and to the right movement um the second thing i would say is when i'm talking about the subconscious feeling i really haven't found an analogy or a way to put it so i'll try to explain it like Think of where you were at the beginning of April 2020, when your stock portfolio was down 40% and people were getting laid off and all of that all across the world. If you were nervous financially during that time period, or even now, right? We're recording this in October of 2022. Right. I, Jason, I think 2023 is going to be a rough year, right? Yeah. And you're starting to see hiring starting. freezes. Yeah. Hiring freezes, hiring cuts. Um, and, and downsizing and things like that. If you're nervous that you're going to get caught up in that mix and then all of a sudden have to worry about how you're paying your bills, now is a good time to start thinking about where do you get that passive income? Where can you store money in for a rainy day and not accumulation in the stock market because accumulation doesn't pay bills. Passive income pays bills and going to find those passive income streams. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. You, you can't uh, you, yeah, you may have some some stocks that are in an independent brokerage that you could sell off now, but now is probably not the time you want to be selling your stocks. So yeah, it's definitely um, developing those streams of passive income are going to be are going to put you in a much much better position in times like this, uh, times like 2008, times like now, where the where the it's a different economy issues, but it's still you know economically people are nervous for sure um but what so you said you know okay i'm going to decide between what do i where do i go on my my uh 10 single families what's what's my next step and so you felt like finding local bank connections would be a challenge so so what did you do there um what 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 kind of steps did you make to kind of progress your portfolio 
Yeah, so that's when I decided to get into multifamily. So there were two incidents that really happened to me in 2020 that made me jump more into the commercial uh, real estate space. One was the 10, 10 single family limit. So Fannie and Freddie, it became more difficult to find uh, sources of loans and sources of income You or that you absolutely can do it. It's just a decision of saying, hey, this is where I want to spend my time. And then two, I uh, I had two issues at my single family portfolio that wiped out the cash flow for the entire year. One of them was an HVAC. And then the very next month was a flooding that happened. And both of those properties were cash flow negative for that year. So I was like, wait a minute, what can I do to add increased scale? And in technology, we call uh, a, a, a single door, a single point of failure. So that single door, if you don't have a tenant or if something goes wrong with it, it's a single point of failure in your business model. That's what led me to saying, wait a second, commercial real estate, multi-tenants, building in uh, operational expenses and things like that made a lot more sense. Yeah, no, I totally agree. The, the, you know, more doors under one roof analogy is, is it's accurate, right? It's, it's, and, and you talk about, you know, sort of something going wrong, some major expense. You'd also talk about uh, the potential for vacancy. So if you're, you lose a tenant or, you know, through COVID, a lot of people were not paying rent because there was eviction moratoriums or they just, and they just couldn't. So if you run into something that with that, with a single family home, essentially now you have zero uh, income coming from there. Whereas if you have, you know, a 200 unit apartment complex, you can have a number of tenants not paying and it's still it's still making money it's still still able to at least cover expenses and things like that in in nearly all circumstances so how did you make that pivot what was your cuz cuz just going from you know residential to commercial uh real estate is a much bigger I guess topic, right? Because there's many asset classes. There's, you know, so it's it sounds like, oh, I just switched over from <laughs> this to this. But but the reality is you have to make that decision. What asset classes, what markets, what role were you going to take, active or passive? And if active, like what what role within that, right? So there's what was your um decision making process? How how walk us through that? Yeah, absolutely. So the underwriting is a little bit different. I understood the economics of needing housing and putting a roof over someone's head and why that was going to be important for uh, stabilization. Even if the economy turns south, people are going to pay their housing first, or normally they're going to pay their housing first. So I kind of understood that portion of it, but I knew that I wanted to get involved passively before jumping into the active. So my first thing was to go find a bunch of real estate syndication syndicators out there and general partners and start networking with them and start looking at how they underwrote deals and what assumptions they were making for their markets, for their properties. So I started learning about the different asset classes, right? A, B, and C. And then I started learning about the different markets, et cetera. And that's really what led me to come up with um, three things that I look at for every passive investment or every operator that I come across or every deal that I come across. And happy to go into that if you want, but that's kind of where I started my education. Yeah, tell us about that. Yeah, so I think um, when I'm looking at a passive investment in multifamily specifically, there's three things that I look at. One is the team, two is the market, and the third is like the business plan or the structure. So the first one is really the team. And when I'm looking at the team, well, let me clarify. None of these answers, if they're negative, would disqualify a deal for me. It's the accumulation of what this story tells you through these three areas that you decide whether you want to move forward or not. So the first thing I look at is the team. 
And really, I'm looking for what's their background? Have they done a deal together? Have they gone full cycle on deals together? Do they have a real estate background? Who is the contractor if it's going to be some sort of fix and flip? Do they have a property manager? Who is that property manager? Have they managed properties in that area? So again, it's not saying that you have to have a yes to all those different answers, but businesses are complicated. They are marriages that are harder to unwind than a marriage or harder to unwind than a divorce is, right? So if you are getting involved with a deal, you want to make sure that that team has some sort of experience together to weather the difficult times that no doubt, undoubtedly, they will go through during the the whole period of that investment. Yeah, no, that, that's that's a great point. Um, you so you started looking at you know sort of passive investments. How did you did you choose a specific market? What 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 are your criteria? I guess when you're looking for uh, to as I know you mentioned some of the, the factors, but do you have? A specific, you know, I want to be in these certain markets. I want to invest in, you know, whatever it is, size of apartment. What's what's your uh, investment strategy? Yeah, so that kind of leads me to the second one, which is the market. Um, so I believe more in a market than a team. Now, let me clarify that a team it can disrupt a good deal, right? Mm-hmm. But a good market can hide a lot of inefficiencies with the team as well. So the primary market that I'm interested in is the Southeast. I think for all of the different areas are reasons that most people know it, job growth, low in, uh, low taxes, low regulation, all of those sorts of things. And I think we saw it during 2020. I personally have always lived in the Southeast. I don't prefer the cold. I don't like the cold. I might go skiing one week a year, but that's that's my yeah. snow fix for the entire year. Um, so I think that a lot of people started moving towards that. So when I'm looking at the market, what I really want to understand is, are there job growths? Is there income growth? And is there native reason why that population is growing? So for all those factors, you are seeing jobs move to the Southeast because of uh, friendly business environments. You are seeing income come with those jobs, and you're seeing population come with those jobs that is native. And what I mean by native, and look, I don't know much about a ton of different markets out there, so I'm not trying to pretend like I'm some market expert out there, but I'll just pick on like Lake Tahoe or Boise right now. In 2020, there's a lot of people that fled California because Nevada was a tax-friendly state or Boise was a tax-friendly area, but the jobs didn't go with them. They were able to work from home. Apple didn't pick up from Cupertino and move to Lake Tahoe or to Boise. So that is some of the things that I think are non-native population growth. And what we're seeing right now is this return to office struggle with big companies. And uh, that's still to be played out. I don't know who's going to win that. But when I look at Nashville and Amazon brings 50,000 jobs, AB brings 5,000 jobs from New York, Michelin and Bridgestone continue to grow their presence in Middle Tennessee, Nissan has their North American headquarters here. When I see those kinds of jobs moving into a market, then that's usually a good sign that that market has some tailwind. Yeah, no, I love I've I've actually never heard anyone sort of talk about it that way. I love that uh, concept. I think it, it's a great point. Um, I think when something big happens like covid was obviously a very big event in the big world event um you know life changing but everybody thought the cities are dead office is dead like none of this will ever happen again and it's like well we 
if COVID never goes away, sure, maybe maybe the cities are dead and and uh, you know office is dead. But ultimately, there are things about cities, things about you know going to work that people, a lot of people actually enjoy. Right? There's there's a component of that. Um, certainly living in a city there's it's not just about the job right it's you know it's sports it's culture it's schools it like it's opportunity basically right if you live in in uh you know sort of sort of like not again not to pick on idaho but r- rural idaho you don't have all of those things and a lot of that is is important to a lot of people so i never believed that the cities were going you know just go away. Right. And, and so to your point, it's like, you have to have something in that space that people desire and it's going to, it's going to bring them there. And it's, you know, I, I feel the same way about all of the talk about, you know, everybody's leaving California and stuff like that. It's like, sure seems like there's a lot of people here still with me. And it's like, it's, it's, Yes, there are cheaper places to live. 100% there are cheaper places to live, but that's not everybody's only focus in ter- it's it's a lot of maybe some business headquarter focus, right? So maybe some of the but like the, I have never seen a better place, a better weather than Southern California. Like it, it doesn't exist. Like there are beautiful places in the world, but there is no other place that is consistently as beautiful as Southern California. Like I, I, I challenge that to anyone. And it's like, you know, we sort of, you, you mentioned, you don't, you don't want to go to the cold. I'm from Boston. I don't want to, I don't want to go back to, Bo- I love Boston between May and like, or like now, basically yeah. after now it starts to get hairy as far as do you want to be there? I don't, I don't worry about that here. Like you talked about financial independence, things you don't have to worry about. Guess what? I don't have to worry about here in Southern California. Like I'm not going to have to be like <laughs> be covered in rain or, or have snow to shovel and things like that. And so it, the point is, it's just, you can make these generalizations about places, but, but really your idea of there has to be something native to that location that is desirable is, is actually just, I think it's a phenomenal point. I, I I have not heard anyone say it specifically that way. And and I, I really like it. So uh sorry, off on a tangent, but I but I, I think it's a it's a very cool concept to to sort of focus on. Yeah, absolutely. I, I uh had a customer that moved their headquarters from outside of LA to Nashville, and they basically said to their company, like, we will pay for you to move to Nashville and all this sorts of stuff. And I love Nashville, right? No income tax, great tourist destination, lots of great music, good food scene, all those sorts of things. But apparently, like 70% of that company, their employees were like, No, nah, we're good. We're gonna stay here, you know, because because today it's 42 degrees in Nashville, and I've got uh, sweatpants and uh, sweater on because I'm freezing yeah. this morning and yeah. you don't have to worry about that in LA. But um, I think just to kind of redouble down on this point, when you see, hey, this city uh, hired a thousand people or their their job growth looks good, just try to understand what's causing that, right? So again, I'm not trying to pick on Boise or anything like that. I'm just using it as an example. When people move to Boise from Portland, Seattle, or LA because of COVID. And um, they are going to have to be in a put in a position of whether they go back to the office or stay there. Those jobs that were created because people were moving there were 
service jobs to service the amount of population that was growing there. But when a headquarters moves a place or Amazon says they're moving in with 50,000 jobs, then yes, service industry jobs will be created as well. But they're 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 created to serve the population that's going to be there permanently versus whether whether you know if they're going to be there permanently or not. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. No, I, like I said, I think it's I think it's a fantastic point. Um, did we did we get to the third thing? There was a feel. Like you a... yeah, you had asked about what I invest in or what I'm looking at in yeah. specifically multifamily, and this comes down to the structure of the business plan, right? So when we're looking at the business plan, we're, there's two things that I kind of look at. First is the debt on the the particular asset itself, and then the second is the business plan. So the first thing I'll just talk about is the debt. When we're talking about the debt, the things that I'm looking at are, is it fixed? Is it floating? Is it agency? Is there bridge or MES debt on it? What's the LTV, et cetera? Um, I can tell you right now, again, we're recording this in October of 2022. I am very hesitant on deals that have MES debt, just because I, I feel like we're at a point where the values of commercial real estate will stall for the next, I don't know, six to 12 months, maybe. Mm -hmm. Eventually, they will continue to go up into the right, but usually bridge and mes debt is a short-term debt vehicle to get you to an end place. And if that end place is appreciation of value in the asset, then that's very risky debt. So I'm I'm just shying away from it. Doesn't mean I wouldn't look at those opportunities. I'm just typically shying away from it right now. Um, and then the second is really the business plan. So when I think about business plan, is this a development? Is this a turnkey? Is this a lease up? Is this a value add, et cetera? Where I'm at in the market right now is I'm looking at high B class, A class properties. And the reason why is the elasticity of cap rates. So let me talk through that real quick. What I mean by elasticity of cap rates is in a usual normal market environment, let's say that a, a class A cap rate is four and a half percent. And let's say that a normal C class is nine percent. Well, during this crazy time that we're in, where we're printing a bunch of money and asset values are rising really quickly, you saw that class A cap rate of four and a half percent go down to four or three and a half. So maybe a point of elasticity. However, you saw that class C asset that typically has, let's call it a nine cap rate, shrink down to a six or a five and a half. Now, all of a sudden, you're talking about three to three and a half percent of elasticity. And what we're really talking about is a reversion back to the mean. We will always revert back to the mean over time. I have no idea how long that time takes, but we will revert back to the mean. So I am typically shying away from value-add, C-class, D-class deals right now because we are still in a, a period of flux where we will reverse back to the mean. And I don't want to be holding the bag when, when we ultimately get to that end destination. So ultimately, kind of to sum it up, I since I still have a W-2 today, since I technically am financially free and don't have to worry about multiplying my money so quickly, it's a capital preservation play for me more than anything. I typically shy or stick more towards like high B class, A class properties for that reason. Yeah, I, I, all great points, and I think it. I think as a as a sum summary point of everything you've said. And and I've talked to you know I talked to talked to active investors about this. I've talked to passive investors about this. You need to know those things for yourself. You need to know what your investment criteria are. You, you and and 
the way you just defined it for yourself, like that's in phenomenal detail. I, I don't think I don't think a lot of people actually think it through that, especially from a passive standpoint. They're not thinking it through that that um, in that much detail. So I think you need to know what you're looking for, though, and, and maybe you don't need it in that much detail. Right? Maybe you have some trusted sponsors, and so the the team side of things is already sort of set up for you. You don't have to worry about it. You know, maybe they have a specific strategy that you like, you don't have to think, but, but you do have to think about the market has changed. You do have to think about, um, what you're trying to get out of it. Right. So it's like, do I, is, is cash flow important to me? Do I care about that cash flow there? Or am I trying to build equity? Um, you know, that that's kind of like, or do I just want the tax benefits? Like there, there's so many different angles here it's it points to the number of different uh benefits of real estate but it's knowing what's important to you you know whatever that is to define to to help you get to that place of financial freedom i think is 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 very important yeah and the thing i would say on that is let me go ahead and say that i'm not a financial advisor i'm not notre damas i can't see around the corner i'm just a guy on the internet with an opinion and a view on things don't sue me right but <laughs> one of the things that you talked about there was one the team in the market right is in commercial real estate you don't have to vet as much as you do in single family because I think once you vet a market, then you're looking at operators that service that market, and then you can then you right. can underwrite the operator, and all of a sudden you're you're ninety percent of the way there. Then right. you just kind of have to look at the deals that they're presenting to you. The second point I would I would make that you just said is I, through my journey, what I've realized is that people really don't even understand the investments that are presented to them. So what I mean by that is people will come to me and like, hey, Matt, is this a good deal? Should I invest in this? And I'm like, well, tell me about the deal. And they can't really even understand it. So there are four things kind of I look at on every deal, whether it's Bitcoin, Amazon businesses, private equity, or real estate to just truly understand an investment. And we can kind of walk through those if you want, or we can go a different direction. But I think it's important that people understand a deal before they start evaluating whether it's a good deal or a bad deal. Yeah, no, I, I think let's let's do it. Let's talk about that. I think that's that I agree. That's a extremely important um thing to 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 look at with with whatever deal you're, you know, it's not just is it a good or a bad deal. It's like you talked about before with your your criteria, you're probably not gonna check every single box on every deal that you get into. You're just you're just not gonna, right? Never. It's there, yeah. it's 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 like the rest of life, right? Like <laughs> there's no there's no perfect scenario. So it's kind of like what what's most important to me and and do, does it check enough enough of those boxes that i feel comfortable so um yeah i'd love to hear you know kind of those those four things so before we get into it if you're listening to this show you you're probably more biased towards real estate which i understand but i'm i love finance i love business i love thinking about how businesses operate and different levers you can pull so anytime i'm looking at an opportunity i think about four different things on it and it's called the four method because obviously I'm a narcissist and that's my last name. So the first one is financial liquidity. So what is my liquidity in this investment? And liquidity, just to kind of define it for everybody, means how fast can you get market value back out of that investment? Not can I sell this at an extreme amount of loss and get my get some portion of my capital back? How fast can I sell it at the market value? And so the way I think about it is like a cup of water. 
if I knock over a cup of water and all the water runs out, that's a very liquid investment. Apple stock would be a very liquid investment. There's always people looking to buy and sell Apple stock at any time. Uh, a non-liquid investment would be to take that same cup of water, put it in the freezer for a couple hours, bring it back out and knock it out. No water drips out. That to me is something like a development deal. When you are invested in a development deal, you are in it for the long run. There is there is very little opportunity for your, you to get your liquidity back out of it. And I want to caveat kind of my final liquidity piece with being an illiquid investment is not necessarily a bad thing. I think being in an illiquid investment or having a portion of your portfolio in an illiquid investment is a good thing for your emotions. Because in the bottom of 2020, uh, March of 2020, when the my equity portfolio was down 35, 40%, never once did I think about selling my real estate. But I saw what the market value of my equities were and that thought process came to my mind. So I, I don't think being Ill illiquid assets are bad or syndications is bad. I just think you have to understand the liquidity of an investment that you're looking at. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the second one is ownership. So we went through financial liquidity. The second one is ownership. And when we think about ownership, it's really, are you the debt or are you the equity? And debt can be less risky because if something were to go awry, you were the first in line to get your money back, but you're not going to multiply your wealth or grow substantially unless you are on the equity side. So the first and foremost you need to understand is what's, what's, what area of the capital stack do you sit in? And usually it's typically evolved around either you're the debt portion of it or you're the equity portion of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love it. Um, the third is returns. So when I think about returns, I think about when, how frequent, and how much. And again, this goes back to your preference and you understanding what you want in your particular investment. But I've seen some investments that pay every single month. I've seen some that pay every single quarter. I've seen some that you pay in initially and you don't get it back for another five years with a little return. All of those are good options. But I think you want to understand when you get paid, how frequent you get paid, and how much you get paid. The other concept I roll into returns is really, are you getting a return of your capital or are you getting a return on your capital? So a return of your capital would be something like owning a mortgage note. Each month, you're going to get paid interest, but you're going to get a little bit of your principal back, reducing your position in that investment over time. Return on capital is one where you get paid continually on your investment. At the end, you get your principal plus any kind of equity upside. And then right. the last and most important that we never talk about in this space is the amount of effort that you have to give to get that return. So on a general scale, the more effort you put into something, the higher return you're going to get. So this really comes to active or passive. And I, I'm not here to be an active proponent to one or the other. You just need to understand that if a, if a if a opportunity is providing a high return, that they that might cause more activity in your life, which could drain other portions of your life as well. So when we're thinking about phys, uh, active versus passive, we're really thinking about: is there physical effort? I need to go and swing a hammer. I need to connect people. I need to sign on mortgage notes. I need to manage the asset, et cetera. Or is there a mental effort? Boy, I don't like where the market is going right now. And this could turn out terrible. That sort of effort that's in your mind subconsciously. Yeah. I, I think that's a great point. Uh, 
that last one there. I mean, they're all great points, but the the last one there, and it, it's, God, I think you 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 uh, you sort of hit something that that I have noted. It's like everybody, not everybody, when you're when you're in the space as a syndicator, you see there's there's so many there's so many uh, mentorship programs. There's all these things. Everybody wants to be active, right? Or everybody thinks they want to be active because they want those what, as you described, like higher returns. But I, I, I do think it is understated how much work it is, right? I think it is just it is not. Um, you're not semi-active, like you're. At, <laughs> it's a very active process and a lot of work. So it is. Um, if you're looking for something where the effort is minimal uh in the beginning minimal to moderate and then virtually none once you've made your investment then then that's passive investing like that's really mm -hmm. what that is maybe you want to do a combination of both that's fine but like the the that effort piece that that fourth component there is is really truly um i think understated uh i agree with you you said not, not a lot of people talk it's it's like yeah sure become a syndicator you'll make all this money and it'll be easy and it, it's it's not it's it's the opposite of easy so um <laughs> it's uh it is again the returns can be equivalent to the amount of work you're putting in which is why people do it but but it is uh you know a lot of the the syndicators i know are, are some of the hardest working people i've ever been around and and i've i'm i come i'm a veterinary surgeon that's a, a hard working <laughs> a hard working uh profession as well so it is um something that you you i think a lot of people don't necessarily know so i i, I do appreciate you pointing that out i think i think all of those criteria are, are really good things to to think about yeah and for majority of the population out there, if you are an accredited investor, you would get more bang for your buck on doubling down on the skill that got you to an accredited investor status and making sure that you're using that uh, W-2 income to diversify your income streams through passive investing like real estate. Doesn't necessarily mean that because you're a veterinary surgeon, for instance, that your skill set will automatically fall over to being a syndicator as well and not only that but you're you're now you're now building a double life right you're you're doing one job and another job and trying to do your family and trying to carve out some time for yourself and your hobbies and things like that i'm not saying it's a bad path uh i'm just saying you need to understand what path you're on and being clear about where the end goal is before you start going down a path yeah for sure and and it i can i can attest it, it is uh full of sacrifices by, by trying to make that transition. So yeah, it, I mean, all, all really great points. I, I think, uh, I, I, I sort of will, um, definitely highlight this segment. I think people should listen to this twice because it's, these are really, really important things to consider in it's, I think the question of, should you invest in real estate is an easy one to answer. I think it's yes. Right. Like I think, everybody will say that right everybody who's who's in the real estate space will say yes you should invest in real estate and and i i believe it it's true but i think there's a lot more to think about on in in terms of the how uh how you do that whether it's active or passive and then all of those you know sort of criteria that you spoke about so um i think that's a, it's a really great you know kind of discussion on what what people should be thinking about 
going into that. So um, thank you for for all of that. Let's uh, let's switch gears, Matt. So I don't keep you all day, but um, I want to talk about you know kind of, or I want to ask you the questions. I guess that I get to ask every every guest. Um, and the first one is based on the name of the show being "Know Your Why." So, what is your why? What what drives you? What kind of keeps you moving forward towards success? Uh, I'm going to give you two answers here. One, I was a terrible adolescent child growing up, but for some reason, my parents were very patient with me and gave me all the right skills and set me up for success later in life. So um, there's a, I'm also an Ironman athlete and there's a picture I have where I'm completing a world championship race coming down the chute and my mom's there and I'm going to give her a hug. And she has this most mom look on her face, so (laughs) proud, so happy that I have accomplished some things in my life, but specifically in this moment. And I keep that picture on my desk because it just reminds me that my why is making sure that I continue to be the person that they, um, that they raised, right. And that they're proud of. Um, and then the second thing is I grew up with a mentally disabled sister who unfortunately passed in March of 2018. And, um, at the age of 39 in my parents' home, it was a very traumatic event for my family and my, uh, my parents specifically. And it just reminded me that your life on your time on this earth is limited. And I think everybody kind of understands that conceptually, but until it happens to someone immediate in your environment, you really don't start thinking about it. And it was at that moment where I was like, okay, I want to live a more intentional life than the one I'm living right now. And if you kind of match up timelines, I started investing in real estate in 2017 and that happened in 2018. And so I really started to try to become more intentional with the time that I was spending on this earth to make sure that I help those around me give to the causes that I care about. And that that drives me every single day, knowing that she would be proud of where I'm at. She would be even prouder of where I'm going to end. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm sorry you went through that, but uh, it, I one of my favorite things about doing this podcast is just hearing people take tragedy and 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 you know turning it to something good or something positive as as, as best that you can, um, and and you know sort of honoring those memories and things. So um, that's that's amazing. Uh, you may have already sort of spilled the beans on this one, but the the second question is typically tell us something about yourself that uh, that, that people don't know. I know you just mentioned uh, that you're an Ironman triathlete, so that's it, if you have something else that you want to share, that's uh, that's great. But typically, just something you know, just to let people get to know you a little better. Yeah, so I, I think that's it. I'm an Ironman triathlete. So what that is for your listeners that might not be familiar with it is it's a 2.4 mile swim, 112 mile bike, a 26.2 mile run. Yes, it's all in a single day. Yes, it's all in a single event. I am just a glutton for punishment. But really, the reason why I like that is because ever since probably around the age of 21 or 22, I've been constantly obsessed with how far can I push myself. And one of the things I love about Ironman is you just have to do the work. Right. Like I equate it to uh, LeBron James, a 6'8, 225 pounds of pure muscle and can jump out of the gym. That dude was born to be an athlete. Right. Now, I'm not saying he didn't put in the work. He treats his body and does more work than a lot of different athletes out there. And that's why he's one of the best of all time. But that dude is just genetically disposed to be a great athlete. And Iron Man, you can't avoid doing the work. No one can show up that day and finish an Iron Man without training. One of the things I love about the sport is it doesn't get easier. You just get faster. So it's always humbling. I mean, I can 
could ride my bike for hundreds of miles and, and feel great. And then the next day I go do the same ride. And for some reason it was horrible. <laughs> so I, I think it constantly tested, test you on your humility and where that boundary is. So I, I love that. I love the sport. You find a lot of people who've come through adversity to get to that starting line. And just by getting to the starting line, I think they're winning because they've, the hard part is not the race. The hard part is I'm going to jump off of this podcast and go do a four hour ride at the end of this sort of thing. And if you can constantly do that work, then it will lead to success, but you have to constantly do the work. So a little bit of a tangent there, but yeah, it's something I'm super passionate about. No, I hundred percent agree. And it's, I guess you could use this analogy for business too, but it's, you know, you have to keep doing the work and and it's, you're not going to feel better about it every day, right? It's a cumulative effect, right? So, so as you said, you know, the, the, the bike ride one day might feel amazing. The bike ride the next day might not feel amazing. And you might feel like, you know, but you just got to keep doing the work, knowing that at the end of the day, your results will get better, but it's not going to be a linear you know, progression is not going to be, be straight up. It's going to, there is going to be that, you know, sort of challenges along the way. And, and the thing I would say there too, is consistency will beat talent over the long run, a hundred percent of the time. The problem is I can't tell you when it will beat talent, but if you put in the consistent work every day, it doesn't have to be a five hour task. It doesn't have to be an hour task. Just do a five minute task every single day that moves you towards your goal. And you will be shocked how that compounds over the next year, five years, 10 years. Yeah, hundred percent agree. Um, Matt, when people hear this and they want to reach out to you, how would you like them to do that? We'll uh, put whatever you want in the show notes. Yeah. So two different ways. One, I host a podcast called ice cream with investors. It's a fantastic podcast where we bring up part. We bring on people from all the different areas in real estate. I used to think that real estate was just a fix and flip that you see on HGTV. What I've learned is it's so much more than that. We've had people talk about real estate notes, burrs, fix and flip, apartment syndication, self-storage, et cetera. So that is a fantastic way to kind of get exposed to this real estate niche. So icecreamwithinvestors.com. You'll see a form there where you can reach out to me and also listen to the show. Uh, or then if you're a social media person, go find me on LinkedIn, Matt Four, based out of Nashville, Tennessee. You'll see my ugly face up there in a big technology company. That is me. Um, feel free to reach out to me there. And the warning I would give you is I love talking about finance and I love people helping people see and achieve their highest potential. So if I can add value to you, I would love to do that. Awesome. Awesome. Final question for you. Someone starting out in real estate, what piece of advice would you give them to kind of get them going in the right direction? Um, I would say commit to one task every day and make it a small task. Just be consistent with it. So mine is I try to connect with one person in real estate every day, whether it's on LinkedIn, inviting them on the show, being on a show, whatever it is. I just try to add one person to my network every day because that's 365 in a year that will ultimately connect me with the other another set of group that I'm not exposed to. So just commit yourself to one task, one five-minute task every single day for the next year and you'll be shocked at your growth. Yeah, awesome. Uh, Matt, this was great. I uh, I really appreciate you coming on. I, I think uh, you shared a lot of, of really great value there. I think people are gonna get get a lot out of this episode. So so thank you so much for your, for taking the time. Absolutely. All right. We will sign out. 
I'd like to show you why knowing your why is the start of your journey. Without a strong why, it can be so difficult to reach your maximum potential. My name is Dr. Jason Ballara, and every week I meet with real estate investors and mindset specialists that are taking action in order to build a life according to their own terms. We will break down what drives successful people and allows them to achieve at such a high level. If you are a professional wanting to break through, or simply someone that wants to hear an inspiring story, the Know Your Why podcast is made for you.